Well, welcome to another episode of the More Than A Game podcast. And with me on today's episode is two-time NBL champion and former Melbourne Tigers and NBL great, Lennard Copeland. So Lennard spent over a decade flying his trade in the NBL, uh, starring obviously for the Melbourne Tigers, that famous Melbourne Tigers team through the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, before having stints and finishing his career with the Brisbane Bullets in the Adelaide 36ers, a career spanning uh, 17 years and 532 NBL games. A, a fantastic career. Lennart also spent time in the NBA early on in his career with the Philadelphia 76ers and also the LA Clippers, where he played alongside some of the game's greats, including Charles Barkley and Ron Harper. And looking forward to hearing about that here today. After finishing his career in 2008, he spent time coaching and has shifted his focus to coaching and recently spent time as an assistant coach with the Sydney Kings alongside his great mate, Andrew Gaze. So a lot of uh, things to be discussing, a big career, a successful career, and looking forward to diving into it today. We're going to chat all things basketball, life and leadership. So Leonard Copeland, welcome to the More Than A Game podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. That was a long intro, but I guess so. <laughs> I guess I've been around a long time, huh? You have, mate. It's been a successful career, a long career. Looking forward to diving into it with you. Uh, but before we do uh, dive into uh, your career and look a bit, at, look at, into it a bit, I uh, just want to touch on the Australian Boomers. You recently took out the Asian uh, Asian Cup, uh, only mm. recently. Uh, another great uh, success for the Australian Boomers team, and one that's very much uh, a second string side, really. Um, and so, looking at that game against Lebanon. And that win, uh, I think it's fair to say that Australian basketball is in a pretty good state. Uh, how did you find that game? And and uh, yeah, what do you what are your thoughts on the Boomers' win? Well, look, the Boomers are always going to be in good in good stead because of the rich history and the rich culture that they have. It's the guys beforehand, the Ham, the Shane Hills, and Andrew Gazes and the Vlavs, the guys that put the work in back in the day to make sure these guys today can do this. And it's that rich culture and their belief knowing that Australian basketball is in a good, good place. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, you got guys like Thorne Maker and, and Mitch McCarron on the team. It's always going to be a, a well-led team. And, and it was proven last night those guys dug deep, got the win, and won the championship. So I look forward to seeing them playing in the next Olympics. Absolutely, mate. Just touching on your career, we'll dive into the start of it, but – did you ever get a chance to maybe sit up for the Boomers? I know you're Australian citizen now, but was uh, I was, I was invited to a camp. It was me, Ricky Grace, I think, and Scotty Fisher, because you can only take one naturalized player. Sure. And I think back then they were more looking for more of a point guard. Now, me and Andrew Gage were playing together, mm. and, and they ran some of the same system, but I think they needed more of a point guard to back up Shane Hill, and they took Ricky. And I think Ricky did quite well. I think that mm. was in the, the – the, was that the 2000, Well, yeah. I know he did quite well, and, um, mm. you know, I was pleased. I mean, although I was disappointed I didn't make it, sure. I was still yeah. pleased that, that Ricky got a chance to, to, to play well and, and do well for the Boomers. Mm. Absolutely, mate. Awesome to be part of that culture and, and the fabric, I guess, of the Australian Boomers team. But you've had a, a great career, Matt, as I said. You started in the NBA, and we'll dive into that. But two times NBL champion, NBL grand final MVP in the 97 series. Uh, Twice uh, NBL All-Star, five-time, uh, sorry, five-time NBL All-Star, twice making the All-NBL first team. All-NBL second team, third team. They retired your number at the at the uh, Melbourne Tigers. 
but where did it all start before we dove into into that? How did you start playing the game of basketball? My my career my my career started a lot different than anyone else's. I mean, I, the guys like like Andrew started when he was five, and all these other superstars that played when they were younger. Yeah. I was more of a sportsman when I was younger. Played everything, you know, football, basketball, bit of softball. Um, and I didn't. I, I wanted to play basketball in high school. That's when I started to grow a bit. Yeah. But then I cut my junior and my senior year in high school, and uh, was disappointed about it. Played football, ran track, um, but wanted you know basketball was my first love, and I wanted to play. And after graduation, got a job working with you know some of the fellows that that really didn't didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, mm. and. After working there for maybe three months, four months, I decided to quit the job, go back to school, you know. And uh, once I got back to school, Georgia State University in Atlanta, they mm. had tryouts for their Division One team. Now, it's unheard of if you've never played basketball, you know, high school ball or, or AAU mm. to, to end up on a Division One team. And luckily enough, I played enough in the streets, mm. playground basketball. I was very athletic. They had one scholarship left, and I think it was 32 guys that tried out. And I was fortunate enough to get that scholarship. And, and mm. once I got that scholarship, it went from not playing my freshman year to my sophomore year, getting a little time. Mm. My junior year picked up, my numbers picked up, and that's when sort of some of the scouts noticed me. And then my senior year uh, was my best year. You know, I think I averaged 15 points a game. And, and mm. to average that many points in a Division One team, um, you're certainly going to get a look from, from certain scouts and then I had a um, Lakers scout come out and watch me and a couple of other guys come out and watch me and got invited to a rookie camp with the Lakers. And, and mm. that's where it started. Yeah, it's amazing, mate. And uh, I saw that you were part of the 1989 draft class, I believe. And yeah. uh, that, that class was littered with superstars, Glenn Rice, I think, and Sean Kemp. And, yeah, it would have been awesome. I, I didn't realise Andrew Gates was part of that class as yeah. well which will come to I, I didn't get drafted though I, I, yeah. I certainly just walked on but yeah that was a big that was a big year yeah yeah. Was, no. yeah so that's my question I guess in terms of not being drafted but then being picked up by the uh, Philadelphia 76ers how did that come about and um, yeah what was that experience like being part of that team well again I got invited to the rookie camp with the Lakers yeah. and this is the Lakers usually bring in 16 guys every every team would bring in 16 guys for the for the uh, the rookie camp and the summer league, the summer league that we just finished watching on television now. Mm. Uh, but this year, the Lakers brought in two teams. So we, I had 30, enough, so it was 32 guys again. Um, and I was on the second team. So uh, again, there was some big names there. That was the year David Robinson came out mm -hmm. and we played at Lowell of Marymount. And that second game, we played against David Robinson, that San Antonio. So you can imagine David Robinson coming out of the the Naval Academy, everybody in the world wanted to see him play. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to play against him that first game, and I had 35 points and Go just shot, shot really well in L.A., mm. and that's when Philadelphia noticed me. Now, the Lakers were always – I was always with the Lakers, and they were looking at me, but, again, they brought in so many guys. Mm. You know, they had, a, they had a pick of all these guys. And in that second game, I got a chance to play against Philadelphia. Mm. And their owner and their coach were sitting in the stands, and he'd seen me play. Seen me play the first game, right. and that second game, they came out and said, "Look, we want to invite you to our veterans camp." And then the Lakers said, "Well, we want to invite you to the veterans camp." <laughs> right? When you got two teams like that chasing you, oh, yeah. it was pretty easy to, you know, 
to make a decision and say, well, I'm going with um, whoever wants me to play. So, yeah, yeah. Philadelphia was. And what was that experience like in terms of, I guess, you played alongside Charles Barkley and, and had that experience. It was a great team back then. But, um, yeah, what was that like? And what's Charles like, Barkley like as a person? I tell everyone all the time, I, I got there, and it happened so fast for me because, remember, I never played when I was younger. Mm. To play four years of college basketball and then become a pro, mm. it was too fast for me. I didn't know how to work out. I didn't know what extra work I needed to put in. I wasn't, I wasn't knowledgeable enough to know I got I to gotta get up shots in the morning and in the afternoon. You know, mm. I was just it was a, it was a blur to me. Yeah. And it happened so fast, but Charles and Rick Mahorn, who was who was a very good friend of mine, Scotty Brooks, yeah. who's coaching, um, he was there as well. And uh, we had Johnny Dawkins, who's also coaching, and Hershey Hawkins. So those guys were very good pros, mm. and they, you know, they they helped me along the way. But I was mostly with Charles and Rick because I was a rookie, mm. and as you know, rookies, the, I always have to look after the vets. Go get this. Go get me a coffee. Go do this. Go do that. <laughs> Yeah. I became very good friends with him. Hmm. And, um, yeah, it just happened too fast. I mean, after that year, they released me hmm. and brought in Manute Bowl and another player, and they released me and Scotty Brooks. Hmm. And um, then I went and tried out with the Clippers and, and made the Clippers team as well. So, yeah. yeah. And there's an interesting story I heard in research in your career. Um, I think it was your last play in the NBA. It turned out to be your last play in the NBA. Huge dunk. Can you share the backstory behind that? And, and I, let me tell you something. I've been trying to find this dunk. I don't I know heard. if I heard. race the dunk or what. <laughs> Surely someone can find me this dunk. It's against the, the Charlotte Hornets when yeah. Grandma Ma was a rookie and he came yeah. in and I got four minutes. Now I got the stats. I still got the stats. Yeah. Four minutes I got to play mm. and for some strange reason he was still in the game and I don't know why he figured I mean, because everyone in the NBA is athletic, and you know what I mean? I yeah. guess he, he figured I couldn't jump, and he stood in the lane and put his hands up, mm. and I flushed on him. And the crowd went nuts, and my, my teammates went, Ron Harper won one player of the game, and back then he used to give you a prize. I gave him a gold necklace mm. and, a, I think, a dinner voucher for 200 bucks or whatever. Yeah. I remember him coming to me in the locker room and saying, this is yours, the necklace and the, and the voucher, because that dunk was amazing. You know, and I still can't find it. But that was I came down on on his leg and, and sprained my knee. And they were going to put me on injured reserve. But because they had so many guys on injured reserve, yeah. they had to release me. And then yeah. well, you know, things happened that way. So. Yeah. so for those who may not know the, the nickname, who are we talking about here? Who did you dunk on? Grandmama was his name. Larry Johnson. His name hey. was Larry Johnson. Rookie. I think he might have been the rookie of the year that year. I think he, he, he yeah, came Small six foot five, just massive body. Sort of yeah. like a Charles Barkley, but he scored a lot. Yeah, and he was uh, at Charlotte, Charlotte Hornets. Yeah, yeah, that's so, right. Harry Johnson, great player. Dunked on him. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. But uh, you spoke about Ron Harper there, and I remember you, I was listening to another podcast you're on, and you spoke about what a great player he was and almost saying that he was better than Michael Jordan um, in those early years. So He was. He was, he was a Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan. Wow. Ron Harper had the big hands, yeah. and he, could, he had the great handle. He could shoot it. He was in Cleveland, and he mm. could get to the basket and dunk on you. Now, and back in our day, and I, I say that now, people go, you, gotta be, you must be crazy. Mm. But back in our day when we were playing, he was a guy that everyone noticed. Now, we noticed Michael. Michael was doing his thing. Yeah. But Ron was just as smooth with his mm. and could get to the basket and play. And unfortunately, he had a bad knee injury. 
Mm. And when I came into the Clippers, he was just coming back. So I had a tryout with the Clippers that year because I got cut from Philly. And I went to their tryout, and Ron was slowly coming back, and, and, and I was going against Ron. Now, I went at Ron because I was very athletic, and he was, again, he had a knee injury. Hmm. Uh, but I played quite well, and I was well enough for me to get on that team. So we became pretty good friends. He came out here probably 10, 12 years ago to visit him and uh, Horace Grant, and oh, yeah. I caught up with him then. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's a good guy. Amazing. So just finished up uh, the discussion about the NBA. In all your time there and in the, in the seasons you had, who was the greatest player you played with and against? Greatest player had to be Charles because of his size. He's 6'5", led the league in rebounding. Hmm. Just massive, big, just, just over – most people would think he was overweight, but the way he jumped and the way he dunked on you and the way he took control of the ball – I know it was easy for me to say he was one of the best players I've had, probably the best player I've ever played with in the NBA. Mm, yeah. But uh, Michael, 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 I mean, you know, we played the Chicago Bulls in the first round of the playoffs mm. when I was with Philly. That's the mm. first year Michael won his ring. You know, they, they blew us out. But to sit on the side and watch him go up and down and do his thing, it's great to see him on TV and to see all the moves and all the athleticism. But to sit on that bench, the opposition bench, and watch this guy tear you apart, um, yeah. I became a fan, a real fan. I'm on the other team, and I wanted to cheer some of the moves he made. So <laughs> he was, you know, he was the he, by far the best player I've ever seen play. Even today, he's still the best player I've ever seen. Yeah. So they go in your eyes. They go in my eyes, one hundred percent. Yeah, awesome. Same here. I agree. But uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, after your time in the NBA, you obviously uh, made your way out to the shores of Australia, this great land, and employed your trade in the Australian NBL uh, with the Melbourne Tigers. And I guess um, yeah, there's a lot of imports that came out in that time that were great. Um, you're Darren McDonald's, Derek Ruckers, Ricky Grace, as I've mentioned, mm -hmm. and you're a part of that. Uh, but how did that come about to come out and play in Australia? And uh, I guess what was your first experience like playing in the NBA, all the stars and, and all of that uh, hype to come out to the NBL? And I guess back then, um, as big as it was, so you still had your Laura Hawks playing out of the, you know, the old stadium they were in and, mm. and those sort of things. So what was that experience like uh, coming out and how did it come about? Well, I went, first of all, I went to the Philippines first to play over in the Philippines and I met right. Dwayne McLean over there. And Dwayne was playing yeah. in a game and I was playing in a game. And right. over there, they, had, they played year-round. and first three months is one import, the second is two imports, and the third is all Filipino. Hmm. And I, I was fortunate enough to play with the one import. I was by myself. So yeah. I got the ball every time. Yeah. Uh, I averaged 48 points a game over there, NBA threes. Wow. And I remember playing this game in the Philippines, and I had 66 points. Wow. And, I, and they, they always played two games on a Sunday. And Dwayne McClain was playing after me. He was sitting there waiting, warming up with the ball, and he gave me five, and he goes, that's a pretty good game. Now, I go in and take a shower, come back and say, let me watch this guy see what he can do. He ended up with 72 points. Oh. So I knew he was a gun. I said, Dwayne's <laughs> a gun. So I was always competitive against Dwayne. Like, that was my first meeting of Dwayne. I knew about him, but I was always competitive. And if you go back in history, whenever we played the Sydney Kings, I'd always get my numbers and Dwayne would always get his numbers because we were so competitive. Yes, Andrew scored his points, but I always had to have – 35 or 40 when I played against Dwayne because I knew he was going to get his points. Mm -hmm. And that's how that went about. But my agent called me and said, look, you know, after being cut from two NBA teams, 
you know, you're not playing a lot. You're, you're the 12th man. You need to play because you haven't played a lot. You played four years of college basketball where you really only played two because you didn't play your first two years. And mm. then you on the NBA teams, but you're not playing minutes. You need to go play somewhere. Mm. And I agreed. And I said, find me a team. And he, he found me a team. And there was a team in Greece and there was a team in, in Germany. And then he, when he brought up, he brought up Australia, I heard of Andrew Day's. Hmm. And he also said, you know, Dwayne McLean was going over there. I said, okay, send me, send me to Australia. Had well, and back then, you got to understand, there was no internet. So you don't know, yeah. anything, about, you know anything about Australia. Yeah. And everyone says this, and it's not funny. It's funny to the kangaroos. Everyone's talking about the kangaroos. <laughs> I get to Australia, and Melbourne Tigers are training at the old Albert Park Stadium. Now, I don't yeah. know if you remember that stadium. But yeah, it was, I heard of it, yeah. And it was court nine. We played on court nine. And the, Rings were nine feet, and the backboards were plastic, and oh, there was possum shit everywhere on the seat. <laughs> I'm thinking, surely I didn't leave the NBA for this. <laughs> but again, the talent was was there. I mean, we had Dave Simmons yeah. and and Rob Sibley, and Mark Brackey came in the second year, and Andrew Gage, Ward Giddy. So the, yeah. my, the team was very talented. But Andrew was away the first couple of weeks before I got when I got here, and we played in the Kmart Classic, and I think. I sort of knew that the league was strong because, you know, mm-hmm. guys like Milton Newton and Ricky Grayson, you know, all these guys were playing. Uh, Adrian Branch, I thought he, think he even played. So I knew there was talent here. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, go hard and try to get back into the NBA. Mm-hmm. But because I was 26 and I played that year, it was just too hard to try to go back and try out again. Mm-hmm. Plus, Australia was a good place to live. So Yeah, 100%. Yeah. We well, had a great start to your career, obviously win the championship in 93, but um, I actually came across this old thing uh, the other day, uh, a oh, Mike yep. Copeland play card, <laughs> and I was going through it with my son, and I was like, oh, sort of sparked the idea to get you on here, but having a look at the stats in the back in 92, 24 games played, 29.5 points per game, uh, 2.7 assists, 5 rebounds, uh, 20 points the following season, 23 points average. Like you had a great start to your career. And obviously, as I said, um, you know, set the league alight with your dunks and the alley-oops from Andrew. But playing in that side alongside guys, like you said, Mark Bradkey, Ray Gordon, Andrew Gaze, for me, you know, as a basketball fan, you obviously had the Chicago Bulls era in the 90s. I think Melbourne Tigers is the equivalent for the NBL just in terms of the plays you had. Didn't have mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the amount of championships, obviously, but uh, it was just such a great side and such a great... Uh, team to watch. So, uh, what was it like for you coming into uh, that team? And uh, no doubt, some fond memories playing all those seasons with the Melbourne Tigers. It, it was it was good because Andrew was was so good at you know, and Lindsay was so easy to get along with, and Al Westover was so good to get along with. Yeah. Uh, but to play with a guy who's who's because usually when an import comes to a team, you expect him to be the man, score the points or whatever. Mm. I learned quickly that Andrew was the man. I mean. He, you know, he had the ball in his hand. He was a willing passer, though, which is good. Like, you generally, you have a guy who's scoring that many points. It's all about him. Mm. But Andrew was willing to pass the ball. So, mm. we together, we averaged 60. I think he was averaging 31 that year. We averaged 60 points mm. between us two, and we were the bigger guards. So, we didn't have a problem scoring. Mm. My, my issue was trying to play defense and guard all these little quicker guys like Derek Rucker and Ricky mm. Grace. Mm. You know, everyone, everyone had their little quick point guards. Mm. And I wasn't used to guarding smaller guys, but I did. Mm. But, I had, but I had to play both ends of the floor. So it was a bit different. But, you know, to play with guys like Bucky and, 
Ray Gordon, who kept us on our toes. I mean, mm-hmm. that was Ray's spot before I got there. And mm-hmm. Ray, you know, accepted coming off the bench. Mm-hmm. He wasn't happy in the beginning, but he kept you on your toes in practice. He made you play hard every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warren Giddy, who was a, just an exceptional player, who, who was the most unselfish player I've ever played with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the guys, Nigel Purchase was there the first year. Mm-hmm. Those guys, were, you know, opened their doors and made me feel like I was a part of their family. So, Mm-hmm. I uh, I certainly was was happy to hang around. That's that's one of the reasons why. And back then, like you say, we had big names, and mm-hmm. yes, we did remind people a lot of the Bulls because we had a lot of famous people on the team. Mm-hmm. But every team, you know, back then had bigger names. You know, I looked at Perth; they had Ricky and Bluff and Crawford. So mm-hmm. back then, we were more recognizable because we were on Channel Ten. Yeah, you could walk down the street and someone knew who you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas today, it's slowly coming back, but you know. Is not players aren't as recognizable because they don't hang around. They, they come in for a year or two and they're out of here. So, mm. um, it, you know, it was fun days back then. You know, four teams in Victoria with the Giants, the Magic, Melbourne Tigers, and then Geelong Supercats. Mm. So we were battling for sponsorship dollars. We were battling for fans. Mm-hmm. You know, so – and the best thing about it was whenever we played one of these teams in Victoria, we'd always have a big, big, big crowd, and, and that's when people loved the basketball back then. Yeah, 100%. Can you take us into the inner sanctums, I guess? Because we all watched The Last Dance. We saw how intense training sessions were for the Chicago Bulls. And I can just imagine how intense, you know, Lindsay Gaze is your coach, Andrew Gaze is your captain, yourself, Ray Gordon, as you said. I can imagine those training sessions were intense and and hard ball. As as good as me and Andrew played together and as good as we are off the court, we fought like, brothers every day like <laughs> you got to get back on D you got to pass the ball we yeah. fought every day yeah. uh but Ray Gordon again I, I, I call Ray Ray would have fought when I say fought I mean physically fought everybody on the team wow. one time mm-hmm. in his career Bracky myself mm-hmm. Dave Simmons Andrew Gaze there would have been a Robert Sibley there would have been a fight with Ray Gordon mm-hmm. at one stage every year with one of the players wow. But we knew it was white line fever because when mm. he walked off that floor, he's the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. But he kept you on your toes. He made you come. When you came to practice, you knew you had to tie him up tight and you knew you knew you had to sweat because if you didn't, he was coming after you. So it, yeah. it made us more competitive. Mm. And again, me and Andrew were already competitive. If he scored 30, I needed to get 30. If he, if he had five threes, I wanted five threes. Mm. But what we were doing was making each other better. And yeah. we were competitive. Uh, you know, but we're, we're making it harder for the opposition to guard us. So mm. that's why we're playing so well together. Absolutely. So let's dive into the, the great man a little bit more and get a bit of insight into him because you know, happy birthday to Andrew Gaze, by the way, the other day and uh, celebrate his birthday. But um, by his own admission, I guess, if you walked into a room of uh, people who didn't really know the sport of basketball in this country and you, and you had Andrew Gaze with you and you looked at him and said, this guy was the greatest arguably one of the greatest players Australian basketball has ever seen. You probably look at him and go, really? But he was. Like, look at those the footage at the NBA. You say one of I don't, I don't, I don't find – I think – I honestly think with all the stuff he's done, he is the greatest basketball player to ever lace him up in Australia. Yeah. You, got, you look at it, all of his work, the mm. numbers. You look at all the stuff he's done off the court. Mm. You look at all the stuff he's done for the game. Yeah. I, I, there's not now. Yeah, they're talented players. You know, Ben Simmons is talented, mm. and all these guys are talented. Yeah. But have they? Do they have that same? You know, thing. Did they, are, are they that big off the court? Have mm. they put in that much work 
in the years he's put in and and by far the greatest player I've ever played with, Mm. ever played with, but Mm. by far the greatest player to ever play in Australia. Not a question, not a question about it. So what made him so great? What was because it he, because he put in the work. He put in the work. Now mm. again, I spoke earlier. I spoke about mm. when I joined Charles and those guys. I didn't know how to work. I didn't mm. know how to get better. Mm. But every day after practice, and when we say this, I'm not saying it lightly. Joey mm. was there before everybody else. Mm. Uh, he got there. He always gets there early. He was there early. Mm. He have a ball in his hand, kept working on his shot. Mm. But after training, you say you've had a hard day's training, and it's not. You know, you want to, oh, man, I got to go and jump in the shower and get home, man. I'm starving. Mm-hmm. Drew would always hang around and get up some shots. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it made me feel a little bit selfish to say, well, shit, if he can do it, why can't I do it sometimes? Mm-hmm. And we started doing it. And we played most of our games on a, on a Friday or sa- on a Saturday mm-hmm. or a Sunday when we played. So every Wednesday was off for us. We'd go in and get up 500, 600 shots. But every Friday, We'd have a light shoot around. We'd get up more shots afterwards. And it became a habit, and we kept records of numbers. Mm. But what we were doing was making each other better, you know. And, and yeah. he, he didn't – it wasn't like he did it every now and again. That was a part of his routine. That mm. was every day. That he didn't miss a day. I can't remember Andrew missing a day not getting up some kind of shots. Mm. So he made it a part of our – our thing where we start, and it made me a better player, made me a better person, made me a better player. So mm-hmm. um, that was that was you know what he was. He was he's about the game, and, and, mm-hmm. and obviously obvious because he's put in that much effort to be where he is today. Absolutely, and so clutch too. Like I've said this on the podcast clutch. before, but I the reason I started playing basketball and fell in love with the sport was because of uh, the 2000 Olympics. Uh, they played against Russia. Him and Shane Hill had a great game, but he hit a shot uh, with a minute or two, probably a minute to go, because um, Russia came back and they got within. I think Russia actually were ahead after the Boomers were ahead by about twenty points, and this shot he hit at the end of the game was so clutch. And I just walked away from that game so inspired, encouraged. I was like yeah. I want to be part of that one day. So he was such a great player. But him aside, I guess um, as one of the greatest players he played with. Um, who was one of the greatest players in the NBL you played against? And I had Shane Heal on the podcast previously. He spoke about Jason Smith. He just hated coming up against Jason Smith and, mm-hmm. and matching up against him. And Jason's one of my, well, I know him quite well. But, um, yeah, who was the guy for you that you just, you know, you looked at the schedule, like, I want to play this guy, I can't wait. But maybe um, not so much feared them, but didn't like coming up against them because they were so good. In the beginning, it was Ricky Grace. Uh, yeah. There's no, no secret because I played against Ricky in college. Now, Ricky right. was at a massive school, Oklahoma. Yeah. They had Horace Grant. They had yeah. Stacey King. Jeez. They had Mookie Blaylock. All three NBA yeah. players and Ricky Grace, okay? Wow. So I'm at Georgia State, both Division One schools, but their school is massive and our school is not as, not as big. Yeah. We got a chance to go to Oklahoma and play against them, mm. and they beat the living shit out of us. I, I say <laughs> that. They beat us 60. I remember it. I stuck in my head. 60 to 100 was the score. They beat us by 40 Whoa. points. And it was so hard getting the ball up the floor because Mookie Blaylock was was known as the thief on the floor. Whenever he, Ricky would spin you, whatever you spent, Mookie was right there to steal the ball. Yeah. And so we couldn't get the ball up the floor. We struggled to score or whatever. And I just remember Ricky talking so much trash. And I said, one day I'm going to see you again. One day I'm going to see you again. Yeah. And the first game against the Purple Wildcats, who do I run into? Ricky Grayson. Wow. And, and if you notice, me and Ricky would have a battle. Every time. Now, me and Ricky are very good friends. Very good friends. But I hated his guts. 
and he hated my guts because he was, you know, he, 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 although we knew he was going left, you couldn't stop him. You could not stop him from going left. Um, and he, he, you know, he was smart. He passed the ball well. He could score. He kept that team. He got that team to many of championships, and uh, he was probably the guy that I hated to play against, but I also loved to play against because mm. every time I had to play against him, I brought up that college thing. Mm. I knew he was still going to get his numbers up. You know, yeah. it, you know, he was still going to get his numbers, and you just couldn't stop him. So yeah. I tried to outscore him that away, you know. So, yeah, which was Ricky Grayson. There you go. Great player as well. I, ha- yeah. I thought it. I thought you might have said Shane Hill because I saw footage of you guys going out in one game. I think it was the only time you may have got ejected, and there just seemed so much rivalry between you two. And I think you know, yeah. Shane would have you know, evoked that in a lot of plays because of the way you played. But uh, what was it like matching up against him? And obviously, another great mate of Andrew Gazes. Shane, Shane was very tough to guard, man, because again, as you see, the way he shot the ball, you couldn't block his shot. Mm-hmm. Now, my side was a bit taller, so I always try to end up taking him to the box, posting him up. But, again, another guy who's always going to get his numbers. You're not going to shut Shane down. He's that good, but he's got to score his points. Say what you want to say. Lindsay Lindsay would say, look, Shane's going to do this and Shane's going to do that. But it's a different story when you're playing against him because he's so smart. He's been there. He has that experience. So you couldn't stop Shane. You know, the the only thing I could do was probably try to take him on that box again and post him up because I was a little bit taller. But, look – I, and I think I, I actually think I got my career high on Shane. They, they played with the Brisbane Bullets. Him and him and Simon Curl used to come at me and just give me trash, talk yeah. trash all the time. I bet. And <laughs> I went at them that one game, and I, and I played well. But uh, again, he was one of the players that you had to scout, and you knew he was going to be tough. To, you know, tough to guard, and he was. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's been so good for a long time in, in NBA as well. Absolutely. Do you remember the game I was talking about? I think you. I do. We were, I, I think I was in Adelaide. Was that Adelaide? Yeah, yeah. Was I played in Adelaide. Cool I think they had Matt Shanahan, who I think their job was to try to get into my get under my skin, and Matt yeah. Shanahan was throwing elbows or whatever. And I think what happened was I went at Matt Shanahan first, mm. and and Shane sort of stepped in, and then I went at Shane Hill, and that's the oh. only game I ever got ejected. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember that game. Like yeah. you remember. Yeah, full on. It's on YouTube if people want to check it out. But <laughs> it was very good. But uh, yeah, as I said, you, you moved on from the Tigers. You went to the Bullets for a season, a couple of seasons in Adelaide. I guess, you know, looking back for me, I was surprised that you, like I figured you would, like Andrew Gage, would finish your career with the Tigers. So was there any regrets of how that um, panned out? Or was it just that you wanted to, you know, try your, your apply your trade at a different club and, and see how you went? No, not really. I, I think what happened was Seamus McPeak, who was the owner of the Melbourne Tigers back then, was a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And Andrew was retiring. Lindsay was leaving. Mm-hmm. Reiki was going to move on. Okay? Yeah. So yeah. you got to understand, we, we were known back then as the big three. Yeah. So I sort of said, I went to Seamus and said, let Seamus listen. You guys look like you're just trying to rebuild here. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a rebuild. What do you think? He goes, yep, you're right. You, you, you know, you're quite welcome to be on this team, but your minutes probably won't be the same. And I remember a couple of years before, Daryl McDonald got cut from the Giants, and Daryl called me. Me and Daryl became friends. He called me and said, man, the Giants just released me. And I said, what do you mean? Mm. He said, the Giants just cut me. I said, give me five minutes. And he, I, I hung up the phone from DMAC, and I called Seamus McPeak, and I said, Seamus, the Giants just cut DMAC. 
do we have room for him? Because I knew what D-Mac could do. D-Mac's a player, man. I don't care what, how old how you think he is. Yeah. Maybe he didn't fit in their plans. Seamus called D-Mac. I gave Seamus D-Mac's number. He called D-Mac. And within an hour, D-Mac was a Melbourne Titan. Wow. Okay? So, again, when, when, when Andrew retired and Bracky left, hmm. we had, I was the oldest guy. D-Mac was the oldest guy, and then I was the second oldest. The Tigers didn't want to hold on to two older guys. They were trying to rebuild. Mm. And Seamus said to me, because you've been here, you, it's, your, if you, it's your spot. If you want it, you take it. And mm. I said, wait, because I played with Daisy, Bracky, and Lindsey was leaving. Mm. You know, my minutes are going to go down. I might just want to look around. And then just so happens, Brisbane gave me a call. I went to Brisbane under Joey Wright. And I signed a two-year deal, but I only stayed the one year because I didn't think – I mean, Joey was a great coach, great mm. coach. Mm. I didn't think that program sort of fit me the right way because Joey was more of a college mentality coach. Mm. Remember, I was 40. I was just turning 40. Wow. I didn't have the legs to, to train twice a, twice a day. You know, yeah. I didn't have the legs to, to, to do the type of running that he needed for his team. And that mm. was his team, and, I'm, I mean, and they did well. They ended up winning the championship the year after that. Mm-hmm. But I just wasn't at the, in that you know position to to do this type of running, and and so mm-hmm. we ended up. I ended up leaving, going to Adelaide, where I played two more years. But Phil Smythe was sort of one of those coaches where he wanted me to play my minutes during the weekend when we played, and not all the minutes in practice. So I rode a bike mm-hmm. a lot of the time. I did a lot of shooting, and then got a chance to play with Brett Maher and Willie Farley mm-hmm. and all those guys, and we yeah. you know played well. Or players they were as well, really far very in. Players, very good players. Uh, shifting gears again, you've obviously finished in 2008. Must feel like an eternity ago now, uh, mm-hmm. 14 years. But uh, you shifted your focus to coaching, as I said earlier, and, and had a stint with the Sydney Kings alongside Andrew um, as assistant coach there. And uh, no doubt a great experience to, you know, to play. And I remember, um, or to coach, sorry, and I remember talking to you um, at one of the games. I asked you, what did you prefer, coaching? Or playing, and obviously it was a dumb question. Playing was always going to be the answer. But uh, what was that experience like? Um, you know, coaching, uh, for coaching such a great team in the Sydney Kings and a great organisation um, with your great mate Andrew Gaze. Um, obviously, you didn't have the success you guys are after, but um, there were some great players that played on that team. Andrew Bogut, uh, just to name one. But uh, how was that experience with the Sydney Kings? It was a mixed bag for me. I, I'm I'm very happy, very appreciative that I got a chance to coach in the NBL. Uh, you can't take that away from me. I'm very happy I got a chance to work with some of those superstars. But then what I realized was time has changed. Back in our day, coaches had to, to say, and whatever the coach said would go. Yeah. The game has changed, okay? Mm-hmm. We had a, a leadership group of all the older guys. You know, mm-hmm. Kick it and Bogut and Lish, Brad Newley, you know, those guys, yep. Randall. Yep. So mm-hmm. all these guys are very experienced players. Yep. And I think we let them make too many decisions for the team rather than just being a little bit stronger and saying, no, we're going to do it this way and that way. Yep. Now, again, I'm, I can't take anything away from coaching because I loved it. I loved the fact that I was there and that we coached the Kings. In my, our third year, we actually finished first in first place. Uh, tied for first with the, with the same record as Perth Wildcats in, in Melbourne United, 18 and 9, I think we were. Mm. But we ended up in third place because of wins and losses and percentage. Mm. Uh, but we did quite well. We got to where we wanted to get to. We just couldn't get to that championship. Mm. And uh, a lot of that is, 
I know, you know, as a coach and you're, you're a coach, you, t- you want to take the blame for it. But I think a lot of that was because of how we structured that team. You know, we, 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 were, we were more more about letting them do what they wanted to do, which is great mm-hmm. at a certain extent. But then if you're going to be in charge, you've got to call the shots at the end of the day and make the, make the call. And I think we didn't make enough of the call mm-hmm. um, to get us over the top. But I'm glad I did it. If you ask me if I'd do it again, I'd say probably not. Oh, well, that was my next question. So, yeah. No, no, no. I think, I think I, look, I'm happy to, to help out. I coach a lot of kids in Melbourne. Mm. I coach a lot of, you know, up-and-coming uh, players in the Big V and, and NBL one, but mainly just working with younger, younger kids on their skill work, you know, and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, as far as coaching the NBL, I'd much rather do what I'm doing now, which is media, trying to get into the media, mm. and sort of coaching the little kids, yeah. Yeah, sure. Just pushing into that a little, a little bit more, you spoke about, uh, I guess, getting the balance right between, you know, um, I guess, letting players have their say and also mm-hmm. sort of setting direction and the vision for the team. Um, I guess it sort of speaks into any leadership position or, you know, organisational culture where you do want to empower people, you do want to encourage them to have their say so they feel heard, they feel listened. Yeah. Um, but there is a certain aspect where you do need to set the vision, and this is where we're heading. Um, you're, yep. you're trying to get them to come along with you. So, that's right. You know, how do you get that balance reflecting on your time in that coaching position? Um, you know, what what is it to if you did you know have the opportunity to coach again? Uh, what would you do differently? And and how does that look? I guess uh, more broadly in terms of empowering others and, and letting them have their say. Well, I think if I did get a chance to coach again, I'd bring I I bring the team in and say, look, yes, we want to hear you guys. We want to hear ideas. But again, every company needs a CEO. You gotta have a boss. You gotta yeah. have a, not that I'm gonna go in and, and be the boss, boss. But at the end of the day, they they're paying me to do a job, and that's to, to run this team. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna run it the way I run it. Now, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if they're giving me the opportunity to run that team, I'm gonna do it that way. Yes, I'm gonna have conversation with my veteran guys mm-hmm. and say, "What do you think here? What do you think there?" But yeah. ultimately, I gotta make that decision. I gotta make the call at the end of the day that I think best fits the team and going to help the team rather than, than helping individual players. Mm-hmm. And I think if I had to, you know, if I had to do it over again, I'd sit down with everyone and say, look, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to go this way. Now things might change. If it's not going the way we want it to go, mm-hmm. we'll sit down and chat about that. But again, I got to be, I got to make these calls. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't like it, come to me, let's chat about it. If we can't fix it, then we got to move. We got to, we got to move on. Yeah, for sure. And how important is that vision setting process, I guess, not just for the team culture, but organizations as well? How important is it to set it and say, this is where we're heading um, from your point of view? I think it's the most important thing. I think it's got to happen straight away. I think it has to happen day one. You can't wait and and, and have uh, dissension in the ranks, you know, in a week or two weeks, let's have a meeting now. Because we had this and we had meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. Mm. Now, we met to find out what time we're going to meet. You know, yeah. it, it became um, too much. So yeah. at the end of the day, I think we, you know, you, you, you set that, you, you set those boundaries early, yeah. get them out of the way, and then you focus on on-court stuff. Yeah. And, 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 and we did that. I mean, I'm, I'm not bagging. I, I, I think I'm very happy that, we, that, I coached, that, that I got a chance to coach the Kings. Yeah. And those players were magnificent. And I, there was nobody I couldn't talk to. Bogut, I'd sit down with him, yeah. kick it. Everyone there, I could sit down and have a, a, a great conversation with, and I'm still very good friends with all of them. Mm. I think as a group, as a group, 
there were probably too many chiefs. We just needed one chief. And Andrew was that guy. Mm. But again, because we, we gave them such leeway in the beginning, I think mm. it might have hurt us more than it helped us. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. So it is important in power, but as you said, having that balance, um, yep. for sure. But um, just as we finish up, a couple more questions around coaching. Obviously, as you said, you're still involved in coaching and uh, did some work at the Altona Gators down in Melbourne. Um, obviously involved. I saw you help out the Melbourne United side um, mm. for a few sessions as well. Um, I was talking to someone recently, another coach around this, and you know, I played all my juniors in Sydney and, and played representative basketball here. And uh, I guess for me, um, growing up, I think what coaches don't understand is that, particularly when you're coaching kids, is that not only are you a coach for them, you're also a mentor. And I yes. think outside of the parents, um, particularly when you're playing representative basketball, when you're training one or two times a week playing games, like that's your life um, pretty much growing up. Um, I think coaches need to realise that they're a mentor as well. And it's not always about winning. You know, when I look and look that's back, right. it's not about the winning. Uh, it is at the time. Obviously, you want to win games. But looking back on it now, like, you know, the coach outside of your parents is such an important part of your life. So I guess any coaches listening right now, how important is getting that balance right about, yes, we are, you know, coaching, trying to win and instill these values and, and principles in the kids from a skill base, but also, you know, values outside that they can apply to life and, and obviously setting a, a good role or being a good role model for them. Absolutely. Now, I coach a small academy uh, down here. And again, I, I give a speech probably after every little session we do. I talk about some of the things that you need to work on on the floor. But being a good person off the floor, you know, and getting along with your teammate. And mm. you, you have players who think score, 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 score. But what about passing the ball? Or what about rebounding the ball? So we want you to do all the right things early mm. to, to set that in place. So when you do reach that level, you're, you're a better player, you know. And, uh, again, I give an example. Um, I, I, most of the kids that I work with, have weaker left hands, and we work on the left hand. And I always say, well, if, if I'm coaching against you, I'm going to send you left because you don't like going left, you know. And then, and then all of a sudden, you turn the ball over a couple of times, and then as a coach, we got to take you out of the game because you turn the ball over that many times. Now, straight away, you come out of the game, you don't like the coach because the coach is taking you out. Then you go home and you tell your parents, and then the parents don't like the coach because he's taking – why are you taking my kid out? But we got to get your kid to come in here and do that extra work on their left hand so we can fix the problem. The problem's not the coach. The problem, because generally if a coach is trying to tell you to work on something that, 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 that's not good, he's trying to help you, you know, and, and that, 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 that works for life lessons as well. You know, if someone's telling you something, don't step on the curb because a bus is coming, then you got to be smart enough to look both ways, you know what I mean? So at the end of the day, I try to give a message to these kids Say so it's great that you're out here playing basketball and you're doing all the right things. You're having fun. But, again, don't put too much pressure on yourself. You don't have to score 30 points to be a great player. You can score 10 points and get five rebounds and five assists, and a coach would value you just as much as he does a guy that's scoring 30 points. Well said, mate. That's awesome. Yeah. And just to finish up, obviously, there is so much you know I've learned from the game and no doubt yourself as well that we can apply to life, and that's – why we named the podcast more than the game podcast because there's a lot of life lessons that you know is instilled from playing the sport um so what are the, some of the key things that you've learned um, from playing coaching that you've been able to apply to your life outside of the sport of basketball 
the number one thing is nothing's easy. Nothing mm -hmm. is easy. You got to put the work in. I mean, mm -hmm. again, you get the breaks. You might get an opportunity here. You might get an opportunity there. But if you're not putting the work in, there is no secret. You, you can say what you want. Oh, he's a very good shooter. But yeah. if you're not working on that craft every day, yeah. there's somebody else is. And then somebody going to take your job. And somebody going to take your spot. Mm -hmm. So rather than point your finger, my dad used to say this all the time. When you point your finger at someone, there's three pointing back at you. You see that's me. So rather than sit there and complain about this guy, go out and do your work, get your do job done. And once you handle yourself, then it's great. And, and then again, cut your own grass before you try to cut someone else's grass. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if you can handle yourself and get yourself where you need to get to, everything else will fall into place. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. Well, I appreciate your wisdom and going into your story. Could have talked all day, but I uh, really appreciate your time, mate. And Keep up the commentary. I love seeing you alongside Andrew Gay's NBL and, and the jump on the ESPN. So uh, make sure you check out that. But thanks again for your time, mate, and uh, all the best uh, for the future. Lenai Copeland, thank you for joining us on the More Than a Game podcast. Dan, I enjoyed it. Take care. Good luck with the podcast. And let me know when it's on, all right? 100%, mate. Thanks, Lenai. Thank you, brother.